0: But if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be tonight. And we're just going to be looking at that familiar story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. So I've entitled our sermon tonight, The Master Evangelist. The Master Evangelist, John chapter 4. I also have the opportunity, by the way, to serve uh, along with Shannon Hurley. Some of you may know the Hurleys who live in Uganda. So I'm actually Shannon's brother-in-law. So I married uh, Danielle's little sister. Her name's Lisa. And so we have a lot of overlap uh, with the love that we have for what God's doing in Uganda Several of your elders uh, serve on that SOS board I'm delighted to serve along with them And uh, again, it's just a joy to be with you Oh, John Paul, I forgot you were here Good to see you, brother You doing all right? Good How long are you here for? Eight weeks, all right, it's good to see you. I look forward to catching up with you afterwards. So I I totally forgot John Paul was in town. So he's like the one Uganda guy all excited. The rest of you guys are all quiet. He's like, Uganda, yes, yes, all right. So uh, we're looking at the master evangelist, John chapter four. I'm just gonna read our text to us, I'll pray, and we're gonna dive right in. We're gonna start in verse seven. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw some water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you tonight. We're grateful to be able to gather together in this building as individual temples of the living God. That for those of us who know Christ, we've been called out of darkness into light, and we have the privilege of being adopted into your family. And maybe there would be some here tonight invited by a family member or a friend who doesn't necessarily profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that tonight you would help answer maybe some questions they would have, and that you would use this text, this story, familiar to many of us, of Jesus and this woman at the well to open our hearts tonight. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're talking about Jesus. He is the master evangelist. Do you guys like to evangelize? Do you remember the first time that you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody? Um, I was born and raised in Georgia. Uh, I, I had a, a, you know, been in church since the day I was born, and uh, I went to a public high school. And I remember the first time I tried to share the gospel was with my best neighborhood friend. His name was Richie. And so I remember one night, we were camping out in a tent in his backyard, and I felt like the Holy Spirit just came over me, and it's like, you got to share the gospel with your friend Richie, because if you die and go to heaven, and he dies and go to hell, then you're missing an opportunity. I was pretty Arminian back then, and so I'm like, all right, I got to get Richie saved. So I just remember trying to witness to him, and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know where to start. So I'm just like, uh, uh, Richie? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, do you, do you? do you know God? And he's like, oh, I think so. And I'm like, oh, good, that's great. All right, let's go to sleep. And that was about the extent of my entire evangelistic conversation. Do you know God? And so if that's where you're at tonight, we wanna learn a little bit from the master evangelist, the Lord Jesus Christ, how to do a better job, right? Getting in conversations with people about sharing the gospel. I know as I continued to grow in my faith and go into college, I had opportunity to go on a few mission trips and to share the gospel. And we do evangelism training and go out. In fact, when I was a senior in high school, I would go door-to-door evangelism with my pastor and just learned a lot from him. And then when I was in college, we would do these things. I was a Southern Baptist and we would go to Daytona Beach and we would go uh, to a couple of the other beaches down there and we would do what's called Beach Reach. And Beach Reach is where you go there on spring break to share the gospel. Now, do you think most college students want to talk about Jesus on spring break at the beach? probably not, right? But we did. So me and our team, we would go down there like, we're going to talk to him about Jesus anyway. So we had a strategy. This was with the whole Georgia Southern Baptist Convention collegiate ministries, but we would have like a pancake breakfast in the morning that was free. And then during the day, believe it or not, during the day, we would walk up and down the beach and offer suntan lotion and a Bible, (laughs) So it's like, uh, excuse me, sir, you look a little burnt. Would you like some lotion? Oh, by the way, while you're putting that on, have you ever read the Gospel of John? You know, so maybe not the best strategy, all right? But anyway, we're like just passing out suntan lotion in the afternoon. And then at night, we would have like a rally to get us all fired up. And then we would take our church buses that we went down there to, 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 to offer free rides before Uber, to offer free rides back and forth from the various restaurants and evening entertainment. And then we would also have a late night opportunity of coffee houses that were set up like in um, different areas around town where people could come sober up and maybe have a conversation uh, with a cup of coffee about Christ. And so that would, hey, at least we're trying, right? In fact, we named uh, the bus I was in, we named it the Barna Bus. We thought that was really cool if you grew up in church, you know, Barnabas. But anyway, uh, so I remember, I'll never forget This one guy that was challenging us, encouraging us to be bold for the gospel. I know it's tough. These kids are down here to do spring break, but we're here to win them to Christ. And I remember him telling this story how just a few years prior to one of those trips I went on, he said that he was working a coffee house, and it was late at night, and there was a few people in the coffee house. Some gospel conversations were happening, and there was these three guys and it's like 1 a.m. in the morning. And these three guys are kind of staggering across the parking lot. You can tell they've been drinking. And so this, this, this uh, evangelist would say, hey, guys, don't you want to come in the coffee house? You know, this is a great time to sober up. You can have a cup of coffee. We'd love to talk to you about how, how your week's been. Why don't you guys come on in the coffee house? And these three guys just kind of looked at him. And they're like, man, we don't want to go in the coffee house. You know, we're here to party. Ah! You know, and he's like, No, you guys need to come. I've got something important to tell you. You guys need to come in the coffee house. And they were like, We don't want to come in the coffee house. And he looked at those guys and he said, Mark it down. On March the 15th, 1982, you had an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you refused. Have a nice night, guys. Those three guys kept walking like, who is this guy? I think he is. They kept walking, they kept walking, and then one of those guys fell under conviction. He had grown up in church. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He came running back just a couple of minutes later, poured out his beer can on the, on the parking lot asphalt, and says, what must I do to be saved? I mean, you just never know how God may use you in evangelism. I mean, maybe you don't have some story like that, that's like this out-of-this-world experience, but each one of us in our own way, in your own personality, and with the own pa- your own passions that you have, ought to be thinking through, how can I grow. And so tonight, we're going to learn how to grow, obviously, by looking at the master evangelist, the Lord Jesus Christ. I still think evangelism is scary. I still think it's fun. I think it's exciting. And I also kick myself all the time for missing opportunities to share Christ with somebody. So we're kind of all in the same boat together. But what I want to give to you is three things that we can look at tonight that will kind of help frame this story and help us be better evangelists. Number one, I want us to look in verses 7 through 9 at the Lord's unique approach, the Lord's unique approach. Now, I've already read the text to you, but let me just give you a snapshot of the setting. Jesus was traveling from Jerusalem back north to Galilee. And verse four says, if you look up earlier in your text, it said that he had to pass through Samaria. Now you just need to know there are more than one routes one could take to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. In fact, because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they would usually, on purpose, go around the entire Samaritan area so they wouldn't have to even come in contact with a Samaritan. But notice how verse 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So it's not talking about the route that he had to take, but it's talking about this divine appointment. Jesus knew that there was someone as the sovereign God of the universe that he was going to talk to and went to Christ that very day. And so we understand when we talk about the sovereignty of God and his unique approach, we got to just understand that God is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over every opportunity that you have, every route that you take, every place that you go. I mean, just think about some of the sovereign routes in the Bible. It was no accident that the Midianite traders just happened to be passing by, and Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. It is no accident that the traveling caravan then took Joseph back to Egypt. It is no accident that the daughter of Pharaoh just happened to come down to the Nile River for a bath when she saw the basket among the reeds and decided to help the baby Moses. It was no accident that Mordecai just happened to be sitting at the king's gate and overhear the report of a conspiracy of two of the king's men. And it's no accident that a few years later when the king couldn't sleep at night, he just happened to read about that very account and then desired to honor Mordecai. It is no accident that Jesus, on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, that a woman touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately Jesus healed that woman on the spot who had been bleeding for 12 years. It is no accident that Jesus just happened to be in Jericho, and as he was leaving, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It is no accident that Jesus tarried for a few days before coming back to check on Lazarus, who had since died, so that Jesus may show Mary and Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. It was no accident that Philip, the evangelist, was on the road, or was led to, by the angel of the Lord, led to the road going south, where the Ethiopian eunuch just happened to be reading from his chariot from Isaiah 53. And what I'm saying is this in the Bible, there are no accidents. When people happen to show up somewhere where there's someone else who happens to be in the same place, and all of a sudden there's a opportunity for the gospel to be preached, for Christ to be exalted, there's no accident. And I'm just saying to you tonight, my friends, the same is true for you. It is no accident that you live where you live. It's no accident that you eat at the restaurant that you eat at. It's no accident that you bump into whoever you bump into on the plane, at work, on the ball field. It is no accident. And I think that we as the church have to realize, you know what, I want to just start looking for those everyday opportunities. I mean, I love doing door-to-door evangelism, but I feel like our culture, in a sense, it's a little bit harder than it used to be. I'll just say it like that. Back in the 90s, we did that all the time. Today, it's just it's just a little bit harder. But I do think that the real opportunities that we have as the church— come from stuff like this. Jesus is just going to the well to get some water. Now, he's the sovereign God of the universe. He knows the woman's going to be there. We understand all that, but it is no accident, and it shouldn't be an accident for us to be where we are. There are really no accidents as a Christian, right? Only providence. There is no chance, only events that are ordained by God. There is no such thing as being early or being late you can say amen to that. There's no such things. Too early or too late. It's all ordained by God, so, except when you come to church. Right? I forgot to tell you that. When you come to church, you can't be late. All right. have got to be here on time. But that, what I'm saying is, in God's economy of time, you are where he wants you to be when you are where you are. And you have an opportunity in that moment just to look around and say, all right, God, I'm here right now. Is there somebody you want me to talk to? Is there somebody that I can share the gospel with? Is there somebody that I could maybe be an encouragement to? Maybe sometimes you have an incredible opportunity to do that. Maybe sometimes you don't. But at least you're looking and at least you're asking God to help you be a, a better, bolder evangelist. And so let's look at the Lord's unique approach. What I want you to see, your first, the first little sub-point here about his unique approach is this. Jesus spoke first. He spoke first. Look at verses 7 and 8. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her give me a drink. The disciples had gone and bought some food. I just want you to take note again, Jesus spoke first. And if you feel like, you know, it's almost like in this awkward culture that we live in, that you're sitting next to somebody, you see somebody, you make eye contact, you're like, should I say something? Should I not? You know, is this a friendly person? Is this a mean person? You know, I don't know, but am I going to say something? What do you say? Well, just notice here, Jesus spoke first. Jesus always takes the first step. Jesus is not passive. He's always engaging with people. Jesus is always in pursuit. Jesus is a fisher of men. Jesus may have been hunted, but he is always the hunter, and he's always looking for a way to reach the lost. And the glory of God appeared first to Abraham when he lived in Haran. The glory of the Lord appeared to Jacob when Isaac blessed him and sent him away to find a wife. The Lord first spoke to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. The Lord Jesus first spoke to Zacchaeus when he was up in the sycamore tree. Jesus first spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus. The Lord spoke first on each and every one of those occasions. And you can rest assured that it was Jesus who spoke to you first. You didn't come after him. He came after you. You were lost and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. We were blinded. We were dead. We had no life, no hope. There's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so the, the, the thing I'm trying to say here is that are you willing to speak first? I feel like sometimes as Christians, we kind of feel like we're on the defensive. And I think, and I try to encourage our church regularly, like, hey, guys, we got to get on the offensive. Like, you know, it's, I know defenses win championships, they say, but give me the ball. You know what I'm saying? Give me the ball and let's move the ball down the field. And as Christians, we have to have that mindset of like, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to be different. I'm willing to go against the grain. I'm willing to take a chance. I'm willing to step out in faith. And I am confident that the gospel that I believe in is going to be used through me in order to reach out to others. Jesus spoke First. Another little principle here would be B in that outline. Jesus elicited a response from the woman at the well. He elicited a response from her. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so this woman, she's a Samaritan. The Jews hated Samaritans, they despised Samaritans, they would not eat with Samaritans, much less even talk with them. And so she's, she's a woman. A Jewish rabbi would not normally be talking with a woman in public, like ever. We later learn in the story that she's also an adulteress. This lady had been with five men, and the man that she's now with is not her husband. She is considered a moral outcast. And that's why I believe that she was probably there at the well, as the text says, on the sixth hour which according to the Jewish record of time, six hours after sunrise would have been at high noon. Most people would come get their water in the morning or in the evening, like you might think, in the cooler parts of the day, not in the middle of the blistering heat. And yet that's when this woman showed up. Maybe this woman was ashamed. Maybe this woman was trying to avoid sneers and dirty looks that other women gave her. Maybe this woman didn't want to talk to anyone, and yet Jesus says something to her. And what does he say? It's really simple. Give me a drink. Now, please understand, this is not a beer commercial. This is not like some type of rude thing either where Jesus is like demanding this woman to serve him and fan me and shade me while I have a nice cup of cool, refreshing water. No, no, no. This is actually a way to honor this woman by acknowledging her. It's only two people at the well, this woman and Jesus. More importantly, it was a way for Jesus to steer the conversation in a way that Jesus wanted it to go. You could pretty much guess what the woman was going to say here in verse 9. She, she is shocked that Jesus would approach her. Again, you've got to remember, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and, and she's an adulteress, and, and, and it is an interesting at this stage to even compare And contrast, just for a quick second, some of the uh, similarities and differences between this evangelistic conversation and the one Jesus just had in the previous chapter in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He was a ruler of the Pharisees. And now, the very next chapter, we see another evangelistic opportunity that we're looking at here at the woman of the well of Samaria. Let me give you just a couple comparisons between John 3 and John 4. Both Nicodemus and the woman at the well thought that they were secure in their own spiritual beliefs. Both were extremely literal and physically minded in response to Jesus' spiritual teaching. Both eventually realized that they were spiritually empty and needed a touch from God. Both were hopelessly lost and looking to a religion to save them instead of to a relationship with the living God. Both needed to repent of the powerlessness of their religion, and they needed an authentic relationship with Christ. And while there are many similarities between Nicodemus and the woman at the well, consider these differences as well. Nicodemus was the man of the Pharisees, while this is an unnamed woman. Nicodemus was a man of rank. He was the teacher of Israel. This woman was of no rank as she had come to draw water. Nicodemus was a man of high reputation. This woman was of low reputation. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. This woman is a member of the Samaritans. Nicodemus actually sought out Christ. This woman is not looking for a conversation. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. This woman came into contact with Jesus in the middle of the day. Nicodemus represents the self-righteous. This woman represents The spiritual outcast of her day. I think what the Lord Jesus is showing us as John pens this uh, gospel through the Holy Spirit is that it doesn't matter if you're this really religious person and you know everything about the Bible and you grew up in church or some type of church setting or you could be here tonight and you could be lost as a squirrel on the beach. You could be so far away from understanding any type of structure of Christianity and living in gross sin. And what we see in Genesis, I mean, sorry, in John 3 and in John 4, is like, Jesus is like, I'm here to evangelize both. Each and every one of us needs a touch from the living God. And no matter where you are in your journey of life and what kind of things are going on in your heart and questions you have, you've got to come to Christ You've got to come to Jesus and listen to what he does. So the next subpoint there says Jesus breaks every stereotype. Jesus breaks every stereotype because we see there in verse uh, 9 at the very end again, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. By speaking to this woman, Jesus broke the stereotype of a Jewish man speaking in, in, in a public place to a Samaritan woman. That's what Jesus does. He, he breaks every stereotype, right? Jesus, talked to, he touches a leper where the leper was supposed to holler out unclean and you weren't supposed to come in a hundred feet of them, and yet Jesus touches a leper in Mark 1. Jesus forgives the sinner in Mark 2. He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus calls Levi, who's a tax collector. Jesus discourages fasting. He says, you guys can fast later. Right now, the bridegroom is with you. Jesus allows his disciples to pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath. All I'm saying is you start to see a trend where Jesus always just kind of went against what the Jewish culture was, not in a sinful way, or in a rebellious way, but just to remind them about what he was here for. He was on a mission. He was to fulfill the redemptive work of God to bring salvation to a lost and dying world. And my friends, you and I are on that same mission, which means we got to be willing to break some stereotypes. We got to be willing to have some conversations that aren't necessarily politically correct, It's okay to call a spade a spade. It's okay to call sin, sin. It's okay to have a public conversation about Jesus Christ to anybody that you see at at the appropriate time. You know, we could talk about, obviously, don't take up work time to try to, you know, finagle somebody into a gospel conversation because you're this endless debater and apologetic. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about real life, real people, real opportunities for you to profess the name of Jesus Christ don't be so shy. Don't be so reserved. Don't be so hiding behind the, the professional evangelist. You be who God's called you to be. And we're looking again at Jesus as our example as the master evangelist. And so here we see in this first point, the Lord's unique approach. Let's look at our second point tonight. Let's look at the Lord's insightful conversation. And your next little sub-point there says Jesus goes on the offensive, okay? He goes on the offensive. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, I love what Jesus does here, he now makes this woman at the well feel like she is missing out on something. Jesus is giving her FOMO, fear of missing out. He's like, hey, if you really knew what you're talking about, you would be asking me for water. Remember, he started the conversation asking her for water, and then they get a little bit you know, into it. And then he says, but if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for water. Jesus, in a sense, turns the tables on the woman at the well. When this conversation started, Jesus was the thirsty one. Now he's hinting that the woman at the well should be the thirsty one. And just a moment earlier, Jesus was in need, and the woman had the water. Now we see that the woman is in need, and Jesus has the living water. Just a few moments earlier, the woman was minding her own business, but now Jesus is pursuing her. He's prodding her. He's pushing her to think about life beyond the day-to-day and to consider eternity. That's what he's doing. He's wanting to enter into now, let's move beyond the niceties, let's move beyond, we're sitting here at the well talking in the middle of the day, and let's talk about eternity. Let's talk about a living water that will last forever and ever. And my friends, people don't like to talk about eternity today because they don't have a lot of good things to say other than like, oh, karma, yeah, karma might come back and you got to do good things. It's, but they're very unsure about eternity. And you as a Christian, as a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, have the answer to eternity. How to live a life eternally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to understand here, as Jesus is talking to her, He's beginning now to move into a full evangelistic conversation, and he's explaining to her that water, really, it's a gift. Water is something that, that you give. It's not something that you can just earn, and he's equating that to salvation. Salvation is not something you work for. Salvation is something that you receive. Now, salvation is not deserved. It is given to every believer by the grace of God. If you're here this evening and you think maybe that you've done enough good things to become a Christian or to get on God's good side, I have bad news for you, that's you tonight, that you can't do enough good. In order to get to heaven, the Bible says you have to be perfect without any sin. So if you've ever told a lie or ever cheated or ever got angry or ever had a lustful thought, the Bible calls all of those things sin. And because of our sin, the wages of our sin leads us to hell, to an eternal separation with God. And yet Jesus offers life. And as we see here in this example, he's offering this woman, now he's like, hey, I've got something you need. I've got living water. I've got something to offer for anybody who will come and drink of this water. Jesus says to her, again, if you would just ask, I would give you living water. This shows us that the living water God gives is available to every person who asks. Every Ugandan, every Russian, every Brazilian, every European, every Syrian, every American who asks for living water by faith will receive eternal life. Every Buddhist, every Hindu, every atheist, every Muslim, every Jew, every person who asks for living water will receive it every man every woman every boy every girl who asks every moral person every immoral person every straight person every gay person every rich person every poor person every murderer every thief every terrorist terrorist every businessman salesman every public servant every teacher every stay-at-home mom and every barista Come on, you know we gotta get those baristas saved. They're too cool making their coffee, right? But every single individual who asks for living water, Christ says to this woman, and in response to all of us, he will give living water. Jesus says in John 3.16, it's Jesus teaching us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Christ offers. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus said. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Jesus wants to give this woman living water. Literally, it is the water of life. The living water that Christ offers is salvation, the living water that Christ offers is eternal life. The living water that Christ offers is the forgiveness of your sins. The living water that Christ offers is true satisfaction. The living water that Christ offers is the only thing that can soothe your sin parched, sin scorched, sin withered, sin burnt, and sin shriveled life. It's only Jesus. Jesus. Nothing else will do that for you except a relationship with Jesus. There is not even one drop of soul-replenishing water in this life outside of Christ. There is not even one drop of life-giving water in the whole world. There is not even one drop of thirst-quenching water in hell. According to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, one of the most tormenting things about hell is there is no water there. Not one drop could be placed on the rich man's tongues, on his tongue. And so there he thirsts, and he unspeakably is desiring that he could have just one drop of water. While while Jesus offers this woman water, I believe that he offers each one of us this same water tonight. I, I know Jesus is not here in the flesh, but he is here as the living word, And just as he pursued this woman, he might be pursuing you at this very moment. He might be drawing you at this very moment to come and to drink of the living water that only he provides. You need living water that only Jesus can give. You need that water that is ever flowing and ever springing up from Christ to refresh your soul. Next subpoint says that the woman replies using human logic. Verses 11 and 12, the woman said to him, him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Here in verses 11 and 12, we really see four things that can be observed from verse 11 alone that show us this woman is relying on human logic just listen to these four things that show she's still thinking human logic here number one her continued blindness to who it is that she's talking to number two her occupation with material things number three her concentration of the means rather than the end and number four her ignorance of the source of living water I mean, basically, this woman is still on the horizontal. She hasn't gone vertical yet. That This woman saw that Jesus didn't even have a bucket. This is a very deep well, commentators say, probably well over 100 feet, and you don't even have a rope, and you don't even have a a bucket. What are you going to do, and how are you going to get the water? What kind of water are you talking about? And who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than our father Jacob who dug this well and better than Joseph who watered his cattle here? Do you think you're better than the patriarchs of our faith? Sometimes when you are sharing the exclusivity of Christ, people feel this way. You begin to share like, hey, I'm here to offer living water. It's from Christ. It's in his word. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We deserve God's judgment, but he gives water. But it's only through Christ. And then immediately people are like, hold on, what do you mean only through Christ? Are you saying Jesus is better? Are you you saying the Christian religion is better than being a Hindu? Is that what you're saying? You, you know, you religious bigot. You Kingsburg people, what's wrong with you? A bunch of Republicans in here. So, all right, we've got one laugh from you. There you go. You're alive out there. So, but what I'm saying is that people don't like that exclusivity that Jesus is saying it comes through him and him alone. And when people begin to reject that and they begin to push back against that, we don't apologize. We don't tuck our tail and run. We don't somehow try to become more plural, pluralistic, right? We just say, look, it comes through Christ. He's the living God. He died and was raised from the dead so that you can have life. And just when you start to think in your mind, when you're in the heat of that conversation, you're almost wanting in the flesh to grasp for a really good argument. Oh, well, i gotta, you know, I got to talk about creation, and I'm going to talk about this philosophical argument, and I'm going to talk about you know, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas' arguments to defend the existence of God. I'm gonna talk. It's like, no, 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 just tell him Jesus. Just say what you need is a touch from Christ What you need is to taste of the living water. It's so simple. It's so pure. And it's so powerful. And don't ever be ashamed of it. And don't ever deny it. And don't ever try to somehow dress it up as if you need to get more creative about it. Just tell them about Christ. Do you know what we need to be doing? We need to be evangelizing in a similar way as the Lord Jesus Christ. Not relying on human logic, but rather pointing to the living water of Christ. Next sub-point says, Jesus clarifies satisfying spiritual truth. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Referring to the water in the well there. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life Again the water Christ gives is salvation. The water Christ gives is himself. It is he is the resurrection and the life. We're talking about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus offers. He's offering himself. If you're here tonight and you're still searching for what it is that you're looking for, let me remind you that everyone who drinks worldly water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the heavenly water will never thirst again. You could be an outsider, you could be a loner, you could be a hypocrite, I invite you to come drink of this water. You could be an insider, you could be a friendly person, you could have a great reputation, I invite you to come drink of this water. You could be a child, you could be a a teenager or a college student, I would invite you to come drink of this water. You could be a mom or a dad or a grandparent, and I would invite you to come drink of this water. You could be homeless, a social outcast, or an addict, and I would invite you to come drink of this water. You could be a doctor or a lawyer or a farmer, and I would still invite you, come drink of this water. Jesus said, drink of this water. This means take it in. Take it into your head and your heart and your soul and your life. Drink it. Consume it, ingest it, absorb it, drink it, put it in your mouth. Let it go back into the back of your throat and swallow the goodness and the greatness of this living water. And notice the woman of Samaria's response in your next verse. That next blank says, the woman is interested in more information. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. At least now she's starting to follow Christ. She's not fully there yet, but she is interested in continuing this conversation and learning more about it. And maybe sometimes that's what evangelism is. Maybe sometimes you're describing it, and they're trying to get there, and they're not there yet. And of course, it's got to be the sovereign grace of God opening their heart and their mind and regenerating them as he does uh, through sovereign grace. But at the same time, they're, they're, they seem to be grasping more, and you seem to be sharing more. They're grasping more. You're sharing more. You're making some progress as you're sharing Christ with them. And then the, the last uh, point that we'll look at tonight, number three, the Lord's direct strategy Your next blank says the Savior's strategy, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now here's what's going on. Jesus has been a little bit vague. Then he's been a little bit more clear. And now he's getting really, really clear. And what he's about to do is he's going to take his finger and he's going to place it on the issue in her life that is keeping this woman from coming to the living God. Starts with a wide cup. It's a little bit more specific, and now he gets it very singular. Up to this point, this woman was only thinking about her physical need to come to this well to get some water, but Jesus wants her thinking about her spiritual needs so that she will drink of the living water, and this is where we see Jesus moving in for the kill. He goes deeper than the big picture. Remember I told you I witnessed to my friend Richie. I'm like, do you know God? And he's like, yeah, I know God. I'm like, oh, great, me too. Let's have a good night. You know, that's all, just so generic. That's not enough to really evangelize the gospel, right? He goes deeper than the big picture. He gets very specific. Jesus goes from a 30,000-foot view all the way down to being right beside her. Christ's arrow is about to enter into her conscience. And Christ has many arrows in his quiver for each one He pierces a certain idol of the heart that must be brought down. He had an arrow for Nicodemus. He had an arrow for Zacchaeus. He had an arrow for the rich young ruler. He has an arrow for this woman of Samaria, and Jesus has an arrow for you. Typically, when someone's not coming to Christ, there's this one thing. It could be many things, but typically there's this one thing. So I could never do that because I can't believe in a God that you fill in the blank. I couldn't believe in a God that whatever it is, there's this one hang-up that's keeping you from coming to Christ. And Jesus, through his word, wants to deal with that issue in your life. And here's how he does it with this woman. He just simply asks a great question, hey, where's your husband? Or go get your husband. What Jesus is doing is he's starting to bring conviction into the situation to expose sin that has not been discussed up until this point. And so as he asked that question, obviously she's got to have some kind of answer. The next sub-point says the woman's cover-up. So she kind of covers up. He says, go call your husband, tell him to come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. So kind of a vague, nondescript answer. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband. But notice this woman had been rather chatty up until this moment. Most of the other words in the conversation are 20 to 30 words long recorded in Scripture, which is a whole lot of capital for a Samaritan woman to be in holy writ. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus gets down to the, to the very end here, she simply says, I have no husband. She is reminded of the painfulness of her past, and she just kind of shuts down. And in this moment, your next blank says, the Savior's revelation There in the rest of verse 17, Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He says that she is right in what she says, but in verse 18, she's not given the full truth. Just like Jesus, um, it's just like Jesus to know everything about you, and that you can't hide anything from him and that you've got to be honest as you stand before him tonight. And just like with this woman, Jesus knew Peter when Peter, when he said to Peter, you were Simon, son of John. Uh, Jesus knew Nathaniel when he said, before Philip called you under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus knows us inside and out, and there ought to be a certain comfort to that. He knows your past, and he knows your future. He knows your hurts, and your pains, and your struggles. He knows Every act, every thought, and every feeling, he knows and he cares for this woman. And I believe in a similar way for each one of us tonight, and he cares enough to expose our sin. And this woman's thirst will not be truly awakened unless there be a sense of guilt and a consciousness of her sin. And the Lord does not needlessly shame this woman. Jesus did use, though, his omnipotence to deliver her from her sin, And that's what we've got to realize, is that the gospel actually deals with ethical issues. You could say, oh, well, it's all about this debate about whether you believe in God or not. Well, it's actually about your morality as well. If you're living in sexual sin, is what Jesus is trying to bring to light for this woman, then you can't claim that you're a Christian. Later, she wants to get in an argument about which mountain do we worship on, and you guys say this one, and she's still getting diverted, and Jesus is like, hey, what about your husband? And tonight, you've got to deal with your sin, you can't just say, well, I love God and I'm trying because you don't get to God by trying anyway, but he wants you to abandon every sin in your life, to confess every sin in your life and to come to him. And Jesus wants to cover our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to extend grace and mercy to us in spite of our sin. So he's not there, like he's, just like he's not here to crush this woman, he's there to save her He's here tonight through his word to bring salvation into your heart. In verse 19, the woman's response here, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She now knows that this is a man of God. She knows that this is a spiritually-minded man, and by calling Jesus a prophet, she is indirectly saying that Jesus is accurate in his knowledge of her lifestyle. No longer does she hide from Jesus, but in a sense, this statement is a confession. This statement is a potential turning point in her life. This statement is like saying, I've been running for my whole life, and it's finally time to come home we'll see that from this statement, she now knows that she's dealing with a holy man. And at the same time, she's reached the end of her line. She's at the end of her rope. She is staring heaven in the face. And the next time that that you have an opportunity to review John chapter 4, you'll see how Jesus brings her into saving faith, and she brings the whole town. What an amazing story of the grace of God. And, you know, we didn't have time to uncover and unpack. It's too long of a passage to, to handle it. But I hope that tonight that maybe you just ask a few questions in your own heart of have I met Jesus? Do I know who he is? Do I understand why he came? Do you um, feel and sense the conviction that without him, you have no life? If you're, if you're here tonight and you want to be a better evangelist, just a couple of take-home questions, I think, on this last slide here would just simply be, do you dare to go on the offensive in your evangelism? You know, again, you may say, that's not my personality, that's not my style. You know, I just want to win them over without a word, and I agree with that. There's times for that, but I just think as a church, it would be nice if we got a little bit more aggressive. If nothing else, hopefully COVID has awakened us us to our need to fight and to fight with the gospel. Number two, do you take the time to listen and then clarify the gospel? Jesus is talking with her. She didn't fully understand. He keeps explaining. Hopefully, they finally get to the point to where she has that clarified. And then the last question is, do you have a strategy to get to the heart of the person? You know, a lot of times in evangelism, again, you're just talking and you're kind of saying similar language, but you haven't yet gotten to the crux of the matter. And my encouragement to you would to be very sharp, very clear, very kind, very winsome, very gracious, but very clear about what sin is, who Christ is, how he died, how he was raised from the dead so that that individual can have eternal life.